Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. As humanity rushes headlong into an ever more dystopian future, replete with wars, pandemics, food shortages, droughts, and ever larger populations of hungry, destitute humans filled with fear and living in chaos and violence, perhaps a new perspective would be helpful to understand how we got here and what might be done to improve everyone's circumstances. Perhaps, instead of examining the hard facts pertaining to evil acts, actors, and events, a different analysis is in order. Maybe it's time to look at the world from a spiritual perspective. With that in mind, my guest today is definitely a spiritual man and one of the most extreme whistleblowers on evil. Father Vincent Lampert is an exorcist. He blows the whistle on the devil and demons. In this hour, he discusses how Lucifer became Satan, how evil is purveyed, and can possess people. He also talks about how he does his job and explains how to avoid evil and what each and every one of us can do to make the world a less evil place. Welcome, Father Lampert. So it's good to be with you today. I read two books in preparation for this interview. I read your book, Exorcism, the Battle Against Satan and His Demons. And then I read Father Malachi Martin's book, Hostage to the Devil, The Possession and Exorcism of Five Contemporary Americans. And I must say that I, I think exorcists are the ultimate whistleblowers, as it were. <laughs> One thing you wrote in your book, it, it kind of rearranged my whole thinking about this. You you wrote that one of the major reasons Jesus became human was to free the world from demonic influence and that his ministry was one of exorcism. Yes. I don't think most Christians think of it that way. Could you talk about that a little bit? When you think about the fall of Adam and Eve, you know, evil came about, sin came about because of humanity's disobedience to God. It was at the instigation of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. The serpent tricked Adam and Eve into sinning. And what did the devil say to Eve? Surely you will not die. You will become like gods. So he lied because the end result was that death entered into the world. So then Christ has come along to ref to uh, free us from demonic influence. People might even think about the word redemption. What does redemption mean? And it means to buy back. Oftentimes that can be a religious buzzword. We hear it over and over again. And the question would be, well, what is Jesus buying us back from through his death on the cross? And the answer would be from demonic influence. Let's talk about the devil for a minute because the devil was an angel called Lucifer, right? Mm -hmm. yes. Let's talk about what happened and also just to remind people because a lot of people you know who listen might not even be catholics and talk about why his name is now satan and you know he took a lot of people with him <laughs> too when he left so could you talk about all that there's always the question of when did god create the angelic world saint augustine said that we could tread very cautiously and say that the angels are mentioned right in the beginning of the book of genesis where it says God said, let there be light, and God found it to be good, and then God separated, you know, 
into the day, into the darkness, but the separation is not called good. And whenever we think of angelic creatures, we think of light. Even the name Lucifer means light bearer because he was the angel who was closest to the throne of God. Tradition says that perhaps he was a seraphim angel and the word seraphim means fiery ones. And why are they on fire? Because they're so close to the throne of God that they would be radiating the glory of God greater than any other angelic creature. And a angel in a higher choir can influence the angels in a lower choir. So in the book of Revelation, where it says that, you know, his tail swept one third of the angels out of the sky, when Lucifer chose to rebel against God, then his choice reverberated through the entire angelic choir. And then one third of the angels chose to go along with Lucifer and to rebel against God. But what possessed Lucifer? I mean, the guy was right up there at the hand of God. Well, you know, why uh, blow up his spot like that? Why did he do that? And the interesting thing about that would be that his sin was internal. So he wasn't influenced by anyone else. Many of us, when we sin, we can be influenced by a uh, external cause. But for, the, the, for Lucifer, it was internal. God created the angelic creatures and gave them free will. And when they were created, they were in the presence of all that they could know. You know, as humans, we can grow in our understanding and knowledge, but for an angelic creature, it's kind of like they're downloaded with infused knowledge. They don't have to learn anything. God has just given them all this knowledge. And then when God created the angelic world, he gave them a choice. Would they choose to take the knowledge that God had given to them and to embrace God or to use that knowledge and reject God? And it was Lucifer who wanted to uh, be like God. That's why his temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden, again, is to, uh, to act like God. I, I guess I'm so puzzled by his story because I feel like if you're that angelic that you're right there at you know burning at the hand of god whatever would possess you to all of a sudden say hey i want to be the boss you know i i, I don't understand how someone who could have been so close to perfection how he all of a sudden gets this idea in his head that he wants to be the big boss is there ever any talk about that in the Bible? As you know, as you may not know, but I, I will confess right now, I have not read the Bible. <laughs> I did go to Sunday school when I was a kid. I come from martini-wielding uh, wasps. So, mm -hmm. you know, the martinis were more important, I think, than... <laughs> so, forgive my ignorance. Um, I think yeah. a lot of the understanding and tradition about Lucifer and the fall of the angels comes from the Bible and then other extra biblical sources that kind of fill in some of the blanks and then you look at the history of the church some of the great theologians you know it was saint thomas aquinas who talked about evening knowledge and morning knowledge for example that when the angels were created their infused knowledge was called evening knowledge it was the understanding of things in the natural order and then god basically said with the evening knowledge that i given you Will you now take that wisdom and knowledge and honor and glorify me and receive uh, morning knowledge is what Aquinas called it. And that would be embracing things according to the divine order. So it's not a matter of what do I want, but what does God want? And therefore I submit my free will to the will of God. Many people might find it 
odd that freedom in the true sense of the word and obedience to God go hand in hand. Freedom is submission. Because most people think yeah. that freedom means I can do whatever I want, but we have to act in a manner that God created us to act, and that would be to choose the good and to live according to the divine order. We think about the story of creation in the book of Genesis. It was always evening came and morning followed, and then it was the new day. So the angels were created. They received evening knowledge. Again, this knowledge of the natural order. And then to complete their creation, they needed to embrace the divine order and receive that morning knowledge. But then Lucifer, for whatever reason, chose to, we could say he chose to remain a superior in an inferior order rather than to serve God. Some people have made the comment where the devil said, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. I'm still hoping that maybe somebody will do look into the psyche of Lucifer at the time to figure out what were the circumstances <laughs> of his uh, of his fall, you know? Okay. Well, we might, we might even ask the question, well, why do we as humans reject the divine will? So to understand the psyche of Lucifer, we might begin with trying to understand the human psyche. Because I think there's a lot of people today that live by the guiding principles. You may do whatever you wish. Nobody has the right to command you. And you are the God of yourself. In other words, you get to write all the rules. So to understand Lucifer, we might try to understand why does the human person act that way today? If you think about it, the divine order is is peace and I guess the natural order is kind of chaos. Is that what we're talking about here? I'm not, I'm not sure. I think so, because you think of the importance of faith. It provides us with community. Even the persons of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God exists as a community of persons in one, and God would want humanity to live in community. But you look at the world today, we are so much isolated. And that would be the tactic of the devil is to divide and conquer. You think for a moment with the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, when did the serpent try to trick Adam and Eve? It wasn't when, when, when they were together in community, it's when they were apart. So then the serpent approached Eve, and then somehow in that isolation, evil was able to take root. So I think when we think about faith in our lives, the importance of community should be considered. And I think a lot of people today may embrace this notion of Satan because he's more of a isolated individual rather than the importance of community. It's interesting that you write outright in your book that individualism is sort of the devil side of things. I was thinking about this because immediately I thought about how so many people are so depressed, they feel isolated. This guy who wrote this amazing book, he was very depressed, he was on antidepressants, and he finally decided that he was gonna go around the world and try and figure out what to do about his depression because nobody could do anything about it. And if in a year he hadn't figured it out, he was gonna kill himself. So he went around the world and guess what he discovered? He discovered that what's fundamental to humans uh, is the need for connection to feel like they're connected to each other, mm -hmm. to feel like they're validated, to feel like they are, that, that they have value to a community. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of 
a lot of societal norms now militate against community. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of people are going crazy. I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sort of interpret the things that you're saying and putting them into the real world. And it, it fits. Is mm-hmm. <laughs> It fits. I like to say that I believe the human person has the innate desire for God. And when we don't foster that desire for God, there's that sense of disconnection. It was even St. Augustine who wrote, you know, in reference, he says, God, you have created us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So it's God, to me, that gives humanity ultimate meaning, purpose, and direction. And when we have a disconnect from God, it's no wonder that depression is on the rise. Let's talk about God for a minute, because a lot of people will say, well, who is God? People call him him. I remember when I asked my mother, I mean, we used to go to church every Sunday. <laughs> I, li- I, I got up, I, I was brought up in voodoo land. I was brought up in Haiti, but we went to the local uh, Episcopal sh- church. And I once asked my mother, well, what, what is God? And she said, oh, God is a power. And I was like, oh, I don't understand. So when, when you say that, what should people what should people understand i think when it comes to god there in john's gospel the very basic god is love god is love you know our human language always falls short you know god is a mystery we can't fully understand or grasp god so we use words you know him or whatever as a way for us to wrap our minds around the mystery of god but no matter what we say, we'll always fall short. But to me, the most important thing about God is that God is love. Because yeah. what does love do? Love creates connections. It creates community. It lets us know that we're not in isolation. You know, you think of an image. Can you imagine a newborn child never being lifted up or held? The, the child would not properly grow and develop. It's that sense of connection, the sense of touch. It's the love the child experiences that causes it to grow and develop in the right way. So to me, when I talk about a relationship with God, it's being connected with love with a capital L, because when we're connected to God, then the human person properly grows and develops. And we can think of Satan again, Lucifer, when he became disconnected from God, there's that sense of isolation and, and chaos and disorder. You look at the world in which we live today. You know, to me, it's because faith is in decline. There's a growing trend of people who no longer believe in God. Even when people tell me they're an atheist, I always want to ask, you know, I'm old enough to remember Paul Harvey, the radio announcer. Oh, yeah. And he would always say, now the rest of the story. So when somebody tells me they're an atheist, I always like to say, what's the rest of the story? Does somebody have a traumatic experience with faith or church when they were growing up? Because I really believe that today a lot of people have a misguided notion of God. People grow up in all kinds of faith traditions where it's all hellfire and brimstone. God is waiting for us to step out of line. Fear of God. Fear, the 
the lightning bolt coming our way. So to me, one of the greatest problems we have in modern culture is understanding who God truly is. Well, I mean, if you say love and you keep saying love, I think people would get it. Yeah. I, I, I really do. If you just said, well, God is love, you know, and what is love? Love is that, you know, that energy, uh, you know it, you know it when you, when you get it, when you give it and you can feel, you can feel the elevation, you know? Yeah. You think of, you know, what in one of the Bible stories, a scholar of the law says to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, love God and to love your neighbor. And then that's the story of the Good Samaritan, because then the scholar of the law says, well, who is my neighbor? Because oftentimes we think a neighbor is somebody who is just like us, when the reality is that we are all God's children, which means for all God's children, then we are related and connected with one another. Even in the Catholic tradition, we talk about the corporal works of mercy, the need to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to clothe the sick, or yeah, to clothe the naked, to visit the sick, those in prison. You know, it's that notion of being connected with one another. That's why there's such a strong social, you know, outreach within many faith traditions, because it's all about creating community. It's about spreading love. And hopefully the spreading of love is even greater than spreading any particular, you know, denomination message, for example, because yeah. love is really at the core, I believe, of all faith traditions. And yes. I believe that if we ever have a dialogue with one another, we're going to discover that we have more in common than we disagree with. Even within Christianity, I believe that Christ is at the core, but we're like members of the same family. But, you know, children all have a different relationship with their parent. It doesn't mean it's better. It's just different. So when I look at all the different denominations within Christianity, rather than us bickering about theological points, we should celebrate what we have in common, namely a belief in a God who is love, who took on form in the person of Jesus Christ to show us how we're called to interact with one another to build up his kingdom, which is really about spreading love. And when you think about, you know, the devil, it's not about spreading love. It's about spreading hatred and chaos and division, polarizing, all that other ugliness. That That's really devil stuff. That's devil is. work. Yeah. Well, it dehumanizes. Exactly. Because, it you know, in the story of creation, we're created in the image and likeness of God. And that doesn't mean we have God's eyes or ears or nose or whatever. But if we're in the image of God and God is love, then we need to reflect love out into the world today. And when we're not reflecting love, we're not reflecting God. And if we're certainly, you know, always at odds with one another, then I believe we are reflecting the image of the evil one. One of the reasons why I brought you on, besides the fact that I was talking to my friend, a lawyer who's a devout Catholic, and she goes, <laughs> and I was, I was, because I'm an investigative reporter, I have to take in a lot of knowledge of evil, massive mm -hmm. evil. Oh, yes. And, and sometimes it's, it's really, uh, it's overwhelming. And I keep saying to myself, oh, why is there so much evil? And I, why don't people, I, I think of the criminality sometimes. And I always think to myself, I would love to go up to that person or these people and say, does your mother know you're doing this stuff? <laughs> you know? And so I thought, okay, 
I want to talk to somebody who deals with the the ultimate evil. These these demonic, and it's interesting because the uh, in your book you talk about how demons they they travel in packs actually, right? They they <laughs> travel in groups. So talk about let's talk about exorcism. What are the protocols for determining if somebody actually is possessed? The word exorcism really means to bind with an oath. And at its very core, an exorcism is a prayer. It's a prayer meant to bring healing and relief into the lives of people who are suffering from demonic activity in their life. And the goal is not just to cast evil out, but to invite God in. And so in the United States, there's a protocol that we follow because ultimately the church wants to give people the true help they need. I always say that if the church labels someone as being possessed and that prevents them from getting the true help they need, then the church would end up doing greater harm than good. So many people today, I will tell you, by the time they contact me, have already self-diagnosed. They're not asking, hey, do you think I'm dealing with the demonic? Do you think I'm possessed? And usually when people self-diagnose, that's going to cause a lot of people to close their doors on these people or hang up the phone. So in the, the Catholic Church protocol would be for the person to have a psychiatric evaluation just to rule out any mental health issue that may be the cause of what they're experiencing. Oftentimes when people hear they have to have a psychiatric evaluation, they'll say, well, you don't believe me. But again, if somebody is, is truly seeking healing, then they need to look at it from all aspects. They'll do whatever. Yeah. yeah. I would if I felt the second I step of the protocol would be, you know, the person would need to talk to their family doctor to rule out a physical cause. So if somebody is suffering, is it spiritual? Is it physical? Is it mental? So people need to have a holistic approach to address their problem and not just assume that immediately that it's something demonic. And then for me, I would sit down with the person and if it's truly demonic, what was the entry point into for evil into the person's life? Because the average person doesn't have to worry about, you know, being possessed. So did somebody create an entry point? And then step five of the protocol would be to actually help the person resume their spiritual life or to find a relationship with God for the very first time. So it's not just a matter of casting evil out. It's a matter of inviting God in. It's having that connection with God, experiencing love which will always keep the devil at bay. You said possessions are on the rise right now, that you used to get 300 and some odd calls a year, and now you're getting over 1,800. It's actually up to 3,500 now. Since COVID, the number of callers and emails has, I average uh, about 10 a day. Oh my God, that must be overwhelming. And because I'm publicly known, I certainly get a higher volume. Some exorcist priests choose to remain anonymous, just not to deal with the volume of people that are reaching out for help. And certainly some of these people are dealing with the demonic. Some people have physical issues, some have mental health issues. And I try to direct or connect them with uh, the help they need. What's really sad though, is that oftentimes, if I tell someone it's my opinion that it's not demonic, that they really need to see a mental health professional they will keep searching until somebody validates what they believe. 
And unfortunately, oh. there are people out there who will validate people's beliefs. I had a gentleman one time who told me he was calling from Virginia. And uh, even though I'm a Catholic priest, half the people who contact me are not Catholic. So this was a Christian gentleman who told me that he was convinced he was possessed. I was able to connect him with a mental health professional. And then we both agreed it was a mental health issue that needed to be addressed. He said, well, I don't accept that. So then he reached out to a professional exorcist, somebody who did this for a living, who told him that he was possessed by five demons and he would charge $1,500 each to get rid of them. You can't charge money for an exorcism. No, you should not. It's a ministry of charity and care. But this gentleman was willing to pay the $7,500. Again, there are people that prey on people's brokenness. It's a growing trend. There are many people that are now become professionals in this ministry. But again, the, the connection always has to be with faith. If we think that we have powers and abilities on our own, we're just getting ourselves into trouble. Well, it goes from being a ministry to a business, basically. Yep. There are two types of exorcism, according to Father Malachi Martin, mm -hmm. uh, f familiar and possessed, completely possessed. Could you talk about the difference? So there are level, there can be levels of possession. I think that's what you're alluding to. You know, so there are degrees. There could be the, you know, the initial states where somebody's being afflicted and tormented by evil. The church talks about four different types of extraordinary demonic activity, like infestation, the presence of evil in a location associated with an object. There can be vexation, which are physical attacks, obsession, which are mental attacks, and then there can be possession itself. So sometimes there is a degree of demonic activity. So it may begin with vexation. Somebody is experiencing physical attacks. It could lead to obsession, which are mental attacks. And then if the person doesn't find the true help they need, it could lead to a full-blown demonic possession. And what do I mean by possession? It means that the demon has taken control of the person's body, treating that body as if it were its own, using the person's mouth to speak, their eyes to see, their ears to hear. And once the demon manifests and possesses a body, then all the actions of that body are now defined by the demon and not that person as an individual. So we would never say, well, so-and-so did this or said that, or again, the focus would always be on the demonic that is now possessing this human body. I just want to get back to the familiar versus possessed. Familiar, according to Father Martin, is when a, a demon kind of hangs out with you, doesn't fully possess you, but hangs out with you. And he gives the example in his book of this guy named Jamesy, who um, in the beginning basically he just used to have these strange uh these strange experiences out in nature where he had heightened senses you know he he could hear things better and so on and then slowly this thing this demon would appear he would see it in his back in his uh, rear view mirror in the car and finally it, it sort of presented itself to him and called itself panto and this panto was constantly appearing before him and of course nobody else could see Ponto and this just happened to him 
it just sorry and he got used to ponto helping him in his work he was a broadcaster and he all of a sudden while he was broadcasting he could say all these really funny clever things because ponto was talking in his ear and all that but ponto of course became a big burden after a while and then and then he was exercised and during the exorcism before the exorcism ponto's boss who called himself the claimant was try, was trying to fix things we're actually trying to get this guy jamesy to kill himself so it was this whole progression and during the exorcism uh he discovered uh father martin discovered that jamesy had made a deal before he was born to allow this possession and that kind of weirded and freaked me out a little bit you know that that could happen but anyway the the familiar thing is you're accompanied by the demon who's reporting to who has a boss but uh full possession is what you're talking about when all this horrific stuff happens so let's let's talk about how you prepare for an exorcism so an exorcism again it's a prayer it's a liturgical rite of the catholic church so there is a prescribed way for it to be done so again as a liturgical rite you know it isn't just made up the church says this these are the things that should be done. I prepare myself as a priest. I celebrate mass. I go to confession. I determine where the exorcism will take place. It's always in a sacred space, such as a church or as a chapel. And then I would determine who's going to be present. Certainly myself, the person who's afflicted. I require them to bring a family member or friend with them. And then I will have other people present in the uh, in the church or chapel who are there to pray as the uh, the rite is being said you can tell when an evil spirit is present by various changes in the atmosphere and in in the person itself could you talk about those when i'm working with somebody because as an exorcist i'm trained to be a skeptic i should be the last person to believe that somebody's truly possessed. So there are things that the church says that I should look for that will help me reach moral certitude, meaning beyond a doubt, the person in front of me is truly dealing with the demonic. It's not a mental health issue. It's not a physical health issue. So four things that I would look for would be the ability to speak and understand languages otherwise unknown to the individual. You know, why is that? It goes back to what we talked about earlier. The infused knowledge of angels the, the means dark, that dark they don't knowledge. have to study a foreign language they can just speak it. it's not just dark knowledge but again even when they when lucifer fell with one third of the angels they did not lose that evening knowledge evening so they're knowledge. very evening they're very knowledge. they're very smart and intellectual so they don't have to learn a language they can just call it out the second thing i would look for would be superhuman strength that would tell me that it's no longer this person as an individual in front of me, but now the demon who's manifesting through the person's body. And then I would look for elevated perception, knowledge about things that the person as an individual would not otherwise know, but certainly things that the demonic would know. And then finally, an aversion to anything of a sacred nature, such as being blessed with holy water, having the Bible read in front of them, 
even being in, in a sacred space. So all of these things are meant to trigger a reaction. You alluded to some other things when demons manifest, there can be a change in the temperature of the room that becomes much colder. The person becomes more authoritative. There's a change in their voice because the demon wants to convince everyone it's in control. Eyes rolled in the back of the head, foaming at the mouth. It could be levitation. Person can drop to the floor and start slithering like a snake. Again, the demon is doing these things because it's infuriated, because it's being attacked. And all of these manifestations are meant to instill fear in those who are observing these things so that they will flee and then allow the demon to continue to possess the person. There's also foul odors, right? It could be foul odors, a really bad stench. So there are many different signs and things that I would look for that would help me to determine whether or not an exorcism should be prayed. During the exorcism, the demon tries to attack you too, right? Absolutely, because the demon wants to disrupt the prayer of the church. In the rite itself, there's a prayer at the very beginning asking God to protect and safeguard everyone who's involved in this prayer of the church. There is no such thing as a, an emergency exorcism. I get those calls all the time. Father, can I come and see you right now? I need an exorcism. There is no such thing as an emergency exorcism. The person's problems didn't come, up, come about overnight, and it isn't going to go away overnight. And it's not just a matter of what I will do as the minister of the church, but what does someone need to do for themselves about changing some of their patterns of behavior or whatnot that brought about the demonic possession in their life. What have you experienced as an exorcist during exorcisms where you're clearly being attacked and by the entity that's trying to weaken you? I know I've been insulted. I've been cussed at. I, I had a demon tell me one time, well, you can't get rid of us. We've been here too long and you're just not strong enough. You know, I, I know other exorcists, they've been mocked like you don't know what you're doing. You know, anything just to make the priests feel inadequate and to make anyone else in the room feel afraid. Even well, when a demon manifests, it will size up everybody in the room and determine who the weakest link is and then really go after that person as a way again to disrupt the prayer. Well, another thing that uh, Father Martin mentioned was they actually know the priests, the exorcists, past sins and past life and they bring that up in front of everybody to embarrass the priest. Well, the demons can't do that if the priest has gone to confession, because once something is confessed and given over to God, the devil can no longer use that. You know, what's one of the terms for the devil? Satan, meaning accuser. So Satan will always try to accuse us of our sinfulness. But once we've given over to God, we've taken that out of his playing field, if you will. So it's very important to go to confession before you do an exorcism. One needs to be in a state of grace. And that includes also fasting, right? Prayer, fasting, those are disciplines. When Jesus sent the disciples out and they came back and there was a demon they couldn't cast out, and Jesus said this one can only be cast out by prayer and fasting based on the gospel that one is looking at. Apparently there are various stages of exorcism. Father Martin said that there's presence, breakpoint, the clash, and expulsion. 
I would say those terms are really not used that much anymore. There's different ones, but again, when an exorcism begins, what the church is doing is causing the demon to manifest. The demon would prefer to hide because it knows that it's being dragged out into the open, if you will, and being dragged out into the open, then it has to reveal itself and then the battle against it will begin. That's why the person is blessed with holy water at the beginning. Now, we shouldn't think that any of the things that the church is doing are, you know, Catholic magic, if you will. The things that are being used always point to something greater. So the use of holy water reminds us of baptism, whereby we put on Christ and became a new creation. You know, Paul's letter to the Romans, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So it reminds us of that connection with Christ. So again, that the importance of blessing. And then the demons will become like wild animals because the very things that the church is doing in the rite of exorcism are the very aspects of our faith that the demons have rejected. And it infuriates them, causes them to act like a wild dog, if you will. That's why they'll lash out and, and whatnot, because so, they are being tormented. So the first thing you have to do, though, right, is you have to basically separate the demon from the possessed person. You have to get that demon to, to, to show itself. And then you have to get it to tell you its name, right? That's part of the old rite of exorcism. That's not included in the new rite. Oh, really? There have been changes in the rite of exorcism. So in the older rite, the demon was commanded to name itself. The challenge with all of that is because, you know, demons lie. Satan is the father of all lies. Sometimes they'll just kind of drag you along. Kind of, you know, the exorcist should never let the demon be in charge. The exorcist always has to command to use the power in the name of the authority of Jesus Christ. And again, causing the demon to manifest, to reveal itself, and then using the prayers of the church to weaken the demon where it finally submits to the power and the authority of Christ. And then there is the expulsion. But there is that danger again. We think of chapter 11 of Luke's gospel. It's not just that the demon is cast out. God has to be invited in. Luke writes about once the demon has been cast out, it goes and wanders through the arid wasteland and then coming back and finding the house swept clean, it goes and finds seven other demons worse than itself and they come and take up residence in the person. And being swept clean meaning it's been cast out, but God has not been invited to fill the void in the person's life. So there's no destroying these demons forever? God will do that at the end of time in the final judgment, because the belief is when Lucifer fell, they were cast down to the earth. And then uh, they will roam the earth until the final judgment. People need to realize that even though Lucifer was cast out of heaven, he was not cast out of creation. God still has a role for Lucifer to play in helping to bring about the salvation of humanity. Because again, when somebody is possessed, it shows the reality of evil and the importance of God in expelling the evil so that one can truly live a peaceful and lovable life. So again, God uses the devil 
in a certain sense. We can think about Jesus's public ministry. He's tempted by the devil. And then we're told at the end of the account, the devil leaves him for a while. When does the devil return? When he enters into Judas there in the garden of Gethsemane. And then he betrays Jesus. Jesus is dying on the cross. The devil believes it's his hour, it's his moment. He's finally won. But the moment of his perceived victory becomes the moment of his defeat. And then the devil realizes that everything that he was doing that was leading up to the crucifixion was actually playing into the hands of God. That is so profound. Another thing you wrote was that the greatest debate surrounding the practice of exorcism is that there may be scientific explanations for behavior the church considers to be evidence of diabolical possession. So I was wondering, you know, have scientists ever been invited? I, obviously, you have to pick and choose people who participate in exorcisms uh, very carefully. I mean, you, mm -hmm. get, you get an assistant and then you have a family member or somebody who loves the possessed to also be there. And it's traumatic enough for those people who are not familiar with the intensity of this whole business and, and some of the crazy stuff that happens, terrifying stuff that happens. Uh, but I don't know, is there some way to maybe through video or something uh, to present, talk to, have a dialogue with the scientific community about this? Or is that just, who cares about that? That's just not our business uh, as, as exorcists? That dialogue takes place before an exorcism. That's that part of that protocol, consulting like a psychiatrist or a psychologist, asking them to weigh in on the matter. If it's truly of a mental health issue, then the person should be able to be helped by medicine, for example. So a psychiatrist will prescribe medication that will provide, you know, peace in the person's life. Now, sometimes people contact me and say, well, I took medication and it didn't work. I said, well, how long did you take it? And they're like, a one week. <laughs> so sometimes people look for quick fixes, but we all know that when it comes to you know, drugs prescribed by psychiatrists, they have to fine tune it and tweak it. And it takes a while for things to kick in. Well, and even again, exorcisms can last over a year, right? Absolutely. I mean, every... ultimately, ultimately, God will determine the time of deliverance. My experience is that when exorcisms take longer, it's because the person has not really been forthright with me. They're not really sharing with me all the information and pertinent details. I'm not there to judge the person, but it's right. like going to your doctor. Your doctor can't help you if you don't explain everything. Right. And she doesn't have sometimes all the facts. people are, sometimes people are embarrassed by what they may have done that invited the demonic into their life. But again, I'm not there to judge that. You wrote of eight categories of things that put people in circumstances that would invite the demonic into their lives. Can you talk about that? Entry points. So, Again, whenever I work with somebody, if it's truly demonic, I want to know what was the entry point? What did someone do to open a doorway to the demonic into their life? Some of the examples I gave were uh, uh, the occult, when people dabble in things like magic and witchcraft and whatnot. These can be avenues that invite the demonic in. When you take it home a Ouija board? <laughs> 
the use of Ouija boards, tarot cards, crystals, pendulums. Really? It, All that? Anything that would be a form of idolatry it's, or a substitute for God. Think of the Israelites in the Old Testament when Moses went up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. When he returns, what had the people done? They had created a golden gold calf. calf. Yeah. So that was a form of idolatry. It's a violation of the first commandment. Again, it's that looking for a substitute for God. And isn't that, again, what Lucifer did to Adam and Eve in the garden? You don't need God. You can be God. You can be the substitute for God. Lucifer wanted to be the substitute for God. You know, it's constantly played out over and over again. And these things are all practiced or all these practices are condemned, whether it's in the book of Deuteronomy that talks about don't practicing these things, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. Crystals, for example, you know, the New Age people, they say, well, they have healing energies. So that's that's demonic. I'll guess, tell you the one that shocked me, though. I do yoga. And you mm -hmm. said that that's that can invite the occult because it um, there the positions are positions of of deities or something. I mean, I for me it it just relaxes me. <laughs> now, now I have to tell you, you ruined my day when I read that. Okay. <laughs> the question would be like energy. I hear that all the time. What do, what do people mean by energy? Are they referring to the Holy Spirit that's active and moving and bringing about healing and wholeness in their life? So if it's good energy, then it has to be the Holy Spirit. So we should call it that. But again, I think sometimes people use terminology that's separated from God. And because the devil wants to separate us from God, we need to be aware. So there are different levels. You know, we talked about different levels of possession. There are different levels of where people get, you know, start practicing some of these things. I mean, like the practice of yoga. There's nothing wrong with exercising. Oh, but the challenge would be does someone then they go, they do something and then they're like, the exercises are good. And now what's the spirituality behind this? And so they begin with wanting to do exercises, but then they get involved with the spirituality that's behind those practices. Honestly, Father, contrary. everybody I know who goes to my yoga class, it's because in the end, you just feel so peaceful and you have a big smile on your face. You go out. It doesn't matter if it's raining or shining. You just feel it's you just feel a positive energy. And I have never I've never once thought of downward dog <laughs> <laughs> as being a deity thing. I'm just like, oh, OK, it's getting my blood flowing or whatever. So. But, but but what is positive energy? Positive energy is when you can feel it. And when you walk out, you feel a connectedness. You feel connected to people who walk by you. You you feel that you're one with the world and with everybody. You know, I mean, it's just it's. Can one say where... can one say that, that they feel the presence of God? Yes, because God is love, right? God so, is love. So my challenge would be, why don't we use that term then, rather than say positive That's energy. what I keep telling you in the church. You guys need to say God is love more frequently. You need to say God is love. Because, because and, and now I'm going to be honest with you, Father, too. I mean, I'm very concerned about the church. Uh, you know, I'm married to a Catholic, and my kids are Catholic, okay? But I'm very concerned about the church because of the 
global pedophile stuff, you know? And so I'm thinking to myself, the church needs an exorcism. Absolutely. Well, the line in scripture is you strike the shepherd and you scatter the sheep. So there are priests that have been ordained that never should have been ordained into the church. Even Pope Benedict mentioned that during his pontificate. So if you have people that are caught up in sin and evil in their positions of leadership, and then they're the ones who are recruiting candidates for the priesthood, it's almost like you try to destroy the church from within. within. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's truly something evil. And I would be the first one to say that the church should be doing the old Latin phrase, the mea culpas, mea culpas. We should own our sinfulness. That's the importance of confession. We own it. We don't try to run away from it. We don't hide behind lawyers. We simply say, yes, this is evil. And we repent. We say we're sorry. Why and is that not forthcoming? Because I, to me, pedophilia is the death of the of the purest of souls, really. I mean, yeah. these are children, Father. I mean, why can't they, why can't they do that in a straight up forthright way you know that's why i'm saying is exorcism something to look into here I, i'm not i i'm hurt by it personally absolutely hurt by it, my me, kids are catholic and even as an exorcist i would tell you the focus should not be on exorcism the focus should be on god apps that should be our primary yes focus. but but don't you think that this is the worst kind of i is is it would it be controversial to say that pedophilia is some the probably the worst form of possession I can think of on this earth? I mean, I, I, I just children are are the bottom line for me, Father. I have to say. Well, and I think we would have to say too that we can't always say the devil made me do it. Free will. The devil can propose, but he can't impose. You know, in the garden, he didn't take the the so-called apple and cram it down Eve's throat. One had to make that choice. So the devil can cause us to act in manners that are contrary to God. So abuse against children, I agree, horrific. There is no excuse or there is no place in the church for any of that. But the reality is that people also make bad choices themselves. How have we have as a society come so far down this road you talked about um you know how do we understand objective truth you wrote how do we understand objective truth in a culture insistent on relativism how does one evangelize in a world offended when invited to do something how do we understand sin and salvation when so many have no real interest in becoming saints yeah. So what, what do you tell people, Catholic or not? Because let's face it, there are a lot of saintly people who are, weren't, aren't Catholic. I mean, I think of Gandhi, for example, and what he did, and he was, of course, martyred. But what do you tell people? How do you tell people to turn this ship of evil around? What is your, what is your suggestion or advice? I think we have to change our own little corner of the worlds in which we live. You know, if you look at all the problems that are out there, they can be overwhelming. You know, the, the old adage, how do you eat an elephant? 
you look at an elephant, it's like, how do you eat that? What's well, one bite at a time? How do we begin to change the world? It's, we can do that by the way that we treat one another each day. You know, are, do we spread love when we encounter somebody? Do we smile at them? Do, you know, if, it can be the very simplest things. You look at the life of Jesus, you know, three years of public ministry, and it was always acts of love and kindness. And you begin with the, the goodness and the dignity of the human person. So you don't throw somebody, you know, you don't throw, you know, the laws at people. You begin with just accepting people where they were. I think of the story of the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus says, let you without sin cast the first stone. So, yeah, there's sin, but Jesus wants to recognize the goodness of the person in front of him. That's why he's able to say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. To me, that's the notion and the image of God. And I do think that there is a distorted image of God in this world. You know, my mother was a, a convert. She became Catholic. So half of my relatives are not Catholic. So there are, there are many wonderful and beautiful people all over this planet in many different walks of life and faith traditions and whatnot. But I, I believe, and maybe I'm naive, but I think all of us want the same things. We want to live in peace and harmony. We want to experience love. We want to be connected yes. to one another. I think those are just common human wants and qualities and whatnot. But there's so much ugliness that's out there. One of the things I always like to do, because you know, I'm a parish priest, so I spend half my time in the world of exorcism ministry, but I also pastor two churches in Indiana. So one of the things I always like to do is I'll ask kindergartners, can you draw me a picture of God? Because I always figure you talk about the innocence of children and whatnot. You know, the images they draw is always so heartwarming. It's not about vindiction and evil and all this other ugliness. I think that's why Jesus says in the Gospels, unless you become like this child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's all about the love. Absolutely. I believe that wholeheartedly. If we can just spread love, it can go a long way into changing people's lives and minds. And, you know, and rather than looking at what we, what our differences are, I think we should look at what we hold in common. And that goes back to what I said earlier, that we are all God's children. We're all members of the same family, but each child in a family will have a different relationship with his or her parent. And again, you know, you talk about being in the Episcopal faith tradition or being Catholic or somebody that, you know, like Gandhi in the Hindu tradition. Again, we're all members of the same family and we're just living out our relationship with God in a different way. And the difference isn't necessarily something that's bad. Father, I want to thank you. I know that you have one of the hardest jobs in the world because exorcists leave a little bit of themselves on the table every time they have to do this major whistleblowing job. <laughs> so I want to thank you for your yes, brave work. And, and, and by the way, the audience should know that this job is only given to those who, who are deeply, deeply faithful and humble and really, really good people. So thank you. Thank you for yeah. the work you do.
Yes, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure entirely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Father. All right. God bless. To really